The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We want to open God's Word. I invite you to open them to Isaiah 53, not to John. So yes, you're going to have to make your way a little more specifically to Isaiah if your Bibles are falling open naturally to the book of John. We want to resume this morning in our study of this series that we've entitled The Glories of Calvary. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we have recently completed our study of John chapter 19. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We completed John 19, which ends with the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. Chapter 20 begins with the resurrection, and you'll know that we're just a few weeks out from Easter, from Resurrection Sunday, which is April 24, and so we have decided to save that, chapter 20, for Easter morning, for Resurrection Sunday morning, and so we look forward to that. In the meantime, we have decided to take a few weeks to talk about the implications of the cross in this series entitled The Glories of Calvary. I was out at the Shepherds Conference last week with Jim and Tim and One uh, person asked me what I was preaching through, and I told them basically what I just articulated and said that we've finished chapter 19. We're going to take about six weeks between chapter 19 and 20. And he said, so, oh, you're stalling, huh? (laughs) I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's essentially what we're doing. We are stalling before we get to chapter 20, but it's good stuff, all right? So it's not just filler. It's not just fluff. Uh, We're getting to some, some excellent stuff. We are taking a few weeks to talk about the implications of the cross. To talk about what happened at Calvary. We have studied the historical account. We have looked at John's account of what took place in putting Christ upon the cross and his death and his burial. But now we need to go other places to really understand the implications of this. John doesn't tell us those. And so we are taking some time to look at what happened at the cross. We have said that the cross of Christ is really the center of Christianity. It is the heart and the soul of our faith. It is the essential component of Christ's work. We could say it is the sine qua non of God's plan of redemption. And the word sine qua non literally means without which it could not be. And so the cross is the sine qua non of the Christian faith. You take that away, then it could not be if there was no death of Christ. So crucial was the cross to Paul that he said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love that. He said, basically, in all of his teaching, in all of his preaching, in all of his ministry, the central point of importance, the heart and the soul of his ministry is nothing other than the cross of Christ. And he's essentially saying, listen, you're probably going to forget some of the things that I'm going to tell you. You're going to forget some of the things that I say to you in my teaching, in my preaching, in my ministry to you. But there is one thing I do not want you to forget. And I don't want you to forget the cross. It is the central component of God's plan of redemption. And therefore, we, we need to have an understanding of what took place at Calvary. We need to have a a a deeper understanding than just Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And my fear is that sometimes in the church, we're content to just kind of play in the shallow end of the pool and say that and be content with that. And we're not happy to go deeper into the deeper end of the pool and wade into those deeper truths of the cross. We know Christ died for our sins, but it doesn't go much beyond that. We haven't really plumbed the depths of what took place at, at Calvary. Or maybe we've become so used to it, we've become so familiar with it, that it no longer has that wonder that it once had for us. When Julie and I lived in Los Angeles, we lived near the 14 highway. Now in LA, Southern California, everything is the, every highway is the, the 405, the 5, the 210, the 14, because there's so many down there. We live near the 14. And I remember when we first moved into our apartment, we could see the 14 from our, our uh, apartment window. And the first couple nights, it was loud. And there was traffic going here and there. And there were semis and motorcycles and all kinds of traffic. And the first few nights, I remember thinking, how are, how are we ever going to sleep here? After a few nights, never heard it. 
We became so familiar with it. We became so accustomed to it that the noise of the traffic we, we never heard anymore because it had become so familiar and so used, something that we were so used to. And that's okay when you live by the 14. That's not okay when you stand near the cross. We, we can't become so familiar with it that it loses its, its wonder. We, we can't become so used to it that we no longer hear it and we no longer see it and we no longer appreciate what really took place at Calvary. And so we are, we are delving beneath the details of the death of Christ. And we are seeking to understand what God actually did at Calvary. The first week in this series, we answered the question, who killed Christ? You've not heard that? I encourage you to go to our website and listen to that, that, that message. We answered the question, who killed Christ? And we looked at the number of parties that were involved in putting Christ to death. And there was the Jews and the Romans and Satan and Judas and us. And ultimately God, who put his own son to death to redeem us. So we've looked at that. Over the next few weeks, we now want to ask, ask and answer the question, what did Christ's death accomplish? What did the cross really achieve? That's the question we want to ponder over the next few weeks. And we want to uncover why Christ died and what his death actually accomplished. And so over the next few weeks, I want us to examine a number of the different facets of the death of Christ. We're going to look at propitiation and expiation and reconciliation and redemption. And this morning, I want us to address the issue of the substitutionary nature of the atonement of Christ. You may have to put your thinking caps on. You may need to put your theological caps on for a short time this morning because this is the heart and the soul of the gospel. If the cross is the sine qua non of Christianity, the substitutionary atonement is the sine qua non of the gospel. And so it is this that we need to comprehend and understand that Christ took our place. He, he stood in our stead. He received the judgment that we deserved. In our place, condemned, he stood. And so at the heart and the soul of the gospel is that Christ became our substitute. He took the place that we deserve to stand in, and he took the wrath, and he took the punishment that was ours. This aspect of the cross, this penal, substitutionary, vicarious atonement of Christ is the heart and the soul of the gospel. This idea of substitution is that one person takes the place of another, especially to relieve the pain and to bear someone else's pain and to save them from it. That is, that is what it means to be a substitute, to, to, to be the person who takes the place of another, especially in order to bear someone's pain and save him from it. We admire those who bear the pain of others in order to save them from it. Ernest Gordon was a prisoner of war in a Japanese POW camp in World War II. He has written a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. And he recounts a story about how the POWs had been sent to, to build this railroad through the jungle. And they were working in horrible conditions. It was hot and it was humid and there was little food and they were working long hours and they're working under harsh conditions. And one day when the day's work was finally over, the shovels and the tools were counted and the POWs were abruptly lined up and a Japanese prison guard angrily informed them that a shovel was missing. One of the men must have stolen it, his assumption was. And so after a long tirade, the, the guard demanded that the culprit step forward. Who stole the shovel? No one stepped forward. And so the guard, even all the more enraged, threatened the entire group, saying, all of you will die, all die, all die. And he began pointing a rifle at the first man in the lineup, ready to follow through on his threat, when a POW stepped forward and said, I did it. Furious, the guard punched the prisoner repeatedly. In fact, he took the butt of his rifle and he rammed it repeatedly against the prisoner's head. And even after this prisoner was dead, obviously dead, he continued to beat the body of this POW. He dismissed the other POWs to their living quarters, and at the guardhouse, the tools were counted again. No shovel was missing. 
The POW knew that. He knew they were all there. But he stepped forward and he sacrificed himself to appease the wrath of the guard. He was a substitute. And we are drawn to stories like that. We are drawn to those kind of stories, to those who take the punishment that others deserve. And it's no wonder that God uses that concept of substitution in the gospel. It's no wonder that he would use that to describe how he has determined to save us from our sin. That God took the place that we deserved through Christ, providing a substitute for us. It's no wonder that this idea of a substitute permeates the scriptures. From Old Testament to New Testament, from the beginning of the Scriptures to the end, the dominant theme of the Gospel is that Christ became our substitute. Let me give you some examples. John one twenty nine says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's substitutionary language. The Lamb of God. And that harks back to the Old Testament system when lambs were sacrificed as a substitute for the sin of the person or the sin of the nation or the sin of the priest. The Lamb took the place of the sinner. That's substitutionary language. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the language of substitution. He died in our place. He took our place. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died for us, in our place, on our behalf. One theologian has said that in his judgment, the single most important word in the New Testament, in the Scriptures entirely, is the word for. F-O-R. Now he's being a little facetious because there's many other important words when you come to the Scriptures, but he is saying this one is important because it points to the substitutionary work of Christ. He died for us in our place. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the language of substitution. He died on our behalf. This is known as the great exchange, where God considered Christ to be our sin, even though he wasn't, in order that he could consider us the righteousness of God, even though we're not. This is the language of substitution. Galatians 1 verse 4 says, Jesus who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is the language of substitution. Christ is our substitute. And over and over again, as you read through the scriptures, you find this terminology, this language of substitution, that Jesus took the place that we deserved. He bore the wrath that was deserved for us. He took the punishment that we should have received ourselves. And this is the great doctrine of penal, substitutionary, vicarious atonement. Did you get all those words? Penal. His death is a penal death meaning it paid the penalty. It took the wrath. It it took the punishment. There was a a debt that needed to be paid. There was a requirement that was required. There was a penalty that was needed to be given out to those who had sinned, all of us. And Christ took that. He received it. That's why it's called penal substitution. He took the penalty. It's also vicarious. You understand what the word vicarious means? Vicarious means... Taking the place of someone else, or it's another word for substitute. It's someone who who lives through someone or someone who takes the place of someone else. This is known as vicarious. Now, all of you March Madness fans right now are living vicariously through your teams, right? And you're watching this and you're you're shouting and, and you're off the couch and you're going mad and you're disappointed when your team loses and you say, we won, as if you were there. And then when they lose, you say they lost. (laughs) Like it's their fault. This is a vicarious experience. You are rejoicing in their victory. You are agonizing over their defeats. You have parents who parent vicariously. Right? 
You have parents who essentially live their life through their kids. And these are the parents who are on the, the, the sidelines and on the grandstands. And they're the ones hooping and hollering and shouting. And sometimes it gets a little violent when they start telling people what to do and telling the ref that that was a bad call. They're living vicariously through their kids. This is what the word means, to take the place of someone else. And so when we refer to the death of Christ as a penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement, we're referring to the death of Christ as one in which he was our substitute, and it was penal in that he took the penalty, and it was vicarious in that he took our place. This is the glory of the gospel. In fact, the songs that we've sung this morning, we could not sing if this were not true. Many other songs, And Can It Be by Charles Wesley, says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's penal, substitutionary atonement. And if that's not real, you can't sing that song. Hallelujah, what a Savior Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. This This is the heart and the soul of the gospel. Christ died in our place as our substitute. And this has been the traditional understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ for 2,000 years. That this aspect, his substitutionary death, is the core of the gospel. I think most of us this morning would agree to that. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir. However, listen carefully. It is my contention that the eclipse and the denial of this doctrine is threatening the church today. There are voices now coming, not from outside the church, but inside the church, who are saying Christ's death was not a substitutionary death. It was not a penal death. It was not a vicarious substitution. There are voices from within the church, within evangelicalism, who are saying now that Christ's work was not a substitutionary death. This is the seriousness of this forsaking this doctrine. We've all seen on TV just last night as missiles were launched against Libya, as attacks by NATO started to take place against Libyan forces. Listen, there is an attack upon the gospel. And it's not with cruise missiles. It's with false theology. And it's not against a country or a nation. It's against the gospel. This doctrine is under attack today. Many who say that Christ's death was not a vicarious one. And you need to know this, and I'll show you why in just a few minutes, but you need to understand that those who disparage this doctrine injure the gospel. When you attack this doctrine, you are attacking the very heart and soul of the gospel of what redeems us and brings us to God. And so for 2,000 years, the church has dearly held to this doctrine, but now it's disappearing. The very nature of the work of Christ at the cross is at stake. You say, Todd, give me some examples. Let me do that. Let me, let me show you how this is being played out today. And by the way, this is a very long introduction to a very short sermon. Okay? Let me give you some examples. There are some who have termed the substitutionary death of Christ as primitive and obscene. They think that it's too archaic, that it's too antiquated, that it's... It's just too outdated. How, how, could, how could you ever think about this? Let me read you a, a quote. The sheer hideous inanity of a God that demands a blood sacrifice from an innocent in repayment for the sins of the guilty is a theology that captures the worst aspects of an archaic moral worldview. One that promulgates the barbaric idea of blood, guilt, and blood sacrifice. Modern Christians gasp in horror at those cultures that carried on the cultural values of this mindset, such as the Aztecs and their human sacrifices, 
or the honor killings practiced by many Islamic cultures today. Yet their central theological mystery, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, is premised on the very same archaic view of honor and morality as these throwback cultures represent. I don't get it, this person says. How does a Christian brought up in an ethos of personal responsibility and individual dignity spout sentiments like the above without a hint of moral vertigo? End quote. Understand that? This person who's writing this is saying, how could you ever believe in a substitute who takes the wrath of God, that's like the Aztecs throwing a body in the volcano to appease the gods. It's outdated. It's archaic. It's antiquated. It's primitive. How could you ever believe that? And so they attack the Christian understanding of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's old. It's outdated. It's ridiculous. To think that Christ dying for our sins and being punished for our sins is, bar- is the way to salvation. He has no tolerance for penal substitutionary atonement. This is one example of those who believe that this doctrine is primitive and archaic. Others have considered this, and listen carefully, others have considered this understanding of the cross to be divine child abuse. It was just a couple of years ago that a book came out that essentially denied the substitutionary work of Christ, calling it cosmic child abuse. The book was called The Lost Message of Jesus. Let me read you a quote. The fact is that the cross is not a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement that God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God toward humankind but born by his son, listen, then that makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil, end quote. Listen, he says, if you believe that Jesus died as a substitute for your sins or for sinners, then that is a form of cosmic child abuse. His, his thinking is this. Listen, no, no father would ever abuse their child. No, no father would purposely hurt the, their child or, or, or should never want to hurt their son or their daughter. No, no loving father would vent his anger and his wrath on his own child. And so when he hears this understanding of the gospel and the substitutionary atonement of Christ, he says, listen, that's ridiculous because that's not how fathers should treat their kids. He thinks that holding this view of substitution makes God out to be a child abuser, a father who really abuses their own children. And so he thinks it's a double standard. He says, listen, if God's going to say you need to be loving and you need to be forgiving and you need to be gracious and you need to be gentle and kind toward others, and then that same God then goes, goes and kills his own son and sacrifices his son on the cross, that's ridiculous in his estimation. You can't stomach the thought of Christ being a substitute for sin and God pouring out his wrath upon him. He thinks this is a theory rooted in violence and rooted in retribution thinks it's too violent. He says later, the church's inability to shake off the great distortion of God contained in the theory of penal substitution with its inbuilt belief in retribution and the redemptive power of violence has cost us dearly, he says. You understand that? He is saying if you believe in the fact that God put his own son to death and placed his son, uh, uh, our sin upon his own son and put his son to death, he thinks that that makes God out to be a cruel God who accuses and condemns us for something we cannot help and then murders his own son to satisfy his desire for blood. And he thinks that it actually has kept people from coming to God and bringing people to God through Christ. He would see what we understand to be the core of the gospel as a slaughterhouse religion. Let me take it a step further. A woman has written a book called Let the Children Come, Reimagining Childhood from a Christian Perspective. This woman has written a book on parenting and child rearing from a Christian perspective. Listen to what she says. Particularly appalling 
is the traditional view that God is responsible for Jesus' suffering and sacrifice on the cross. This depiction of divine or cosmic child abuse, as some have named it, wrongly exalts suffering and paves the way for parental mistreatment. You get that? She says, if you believe this stuff, you are at greater risk for mistreating your children. And you are probably at greater risk for abusing your own children if you hold to this doctrine. Those who hold this view believe it's not consistent for God to say, don't pay back evil for evil, and then to murder his own son. So these are the voices now, not outside the church. These are within the church saying that, number one, the death of Christ as a substitute for sinners is primitive or archaic. There are others who are saying it is too violent. Let me give you another example. There are still others who hold that Christ's death was not to pay for our sins, but to give us a good example to follow. They would say that the primary focus of the cross of Christ is to give us an example for us to follow, to see what love in action looks like, and that we should follow that same attitude and that same love, and we should then follow the example of Christ in his love for us on the cross. There's an element of truth in that. This was first articulated by Peter Abelard back around 1100 A.D. He says, The work of Christ chiefly consists of demonstrating to the world the amazing depth of God's love for sinful humanity. The atonement was directed primarily at humanity, not at God. Now listen to this. There is nothing inherent in God that must be appeased before he is willing to forgive sinful humanity. This is known as the example theory of the atonement or the moral influence theory of the atonement, which believes that Christ's death was simply a good example of love and that we should follow his example and love others with the same kind of attitude. As I said, there's an element of truth in that. We see the love of God poured out on the cross. We see the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross. And Romans 5 eight says God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see the love of God displayed on the cross. So there's an element of truth in this. However, listen very carefully. If you say that is the primary focus of the cross, you're missing the substitutionary nature, the heart and the soul of the gospel. It doesn't go far enough. Because the real problem facing us as people, humans, is not that we need examples of love. We need forgiveness from sin, right? All right. Let me bring it home. This is the premise of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. I don't want to say this with all respect and with all graciousness and all humility. Um, I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to be harsh. But my job as a pastor and an elder is to speak truth to you. Titus 1, 9 says the elders are to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Acts chapter 20, Paul says that there will be those who creep into the church. They will be disguised as, as lambs or, or, or sheep, but they're savage wolves that come in among the flock. And an elder is to stand guard against those doctrines. And so I feel a sense of responsibility to speak up when I see truth being maligned, especially when it's right in our neighborhood. You have people that you know that have been at that church or maybe go to that church now. You all have had some sort of interaction. We're all aware of, of that church. And again, I say this with all deep humility and kindness, but I want you to be aware. I've read the book. And I want you to be firmly convinced about the error. And this is the primary error of the book. And the error is this. His view of the death of Christ is that it serves as a perfect example of love. And Christians then are to emulate Christ's love. And as I said, there's an element of truth to that. That, that is true. We should emulate Christ's love. But it goes much beyond that. In his understanding of the atonement, atonement there is no place for substitutionary death. It doesn't exist in his understanding of the death of Christ. It's not there. Christ didn't die for our sins, nor did he take the punishment that we deserve in his view. 
In this understanding of the atonement, man's great need was not redemption. It's not salvation. It's not forgiveness. It's not removing sin. It is love and needing an example of how to love. So Christ supposedly died as an example to show us how we're to love others. That's why there's such an emphasis on social justice, clean water, overcoming poverty, AIDS, stopping human trafficking. Are those good things to do? Absolutely. Those are good things to do. But they're done with the wrong motive. We don't do those things because we're trying to follow Christ's example for loving people and therefore getting our way to heaven. See, he says when we bring heaven to earth, we, we bring heaven to earth when we follow Christ's example of love. And so anytime we act lovingly, anytime we act self-sacrificingly, anytime we show kindness to someone, we bring heaven to earth. Likewise, when we fail to do that, when we don't follow Christ's example of love, then we bring hell to earth. So in Bell's understanding of the gospel and the atonement, he does not say that Jesus' death appeased the anger of God. He does not say that sin needed to be paid for and sin needed to be atoned for. It's not about loving, divine self-substitution but it's about the divine manifestation of love already present in the world. So he would categorically reject any notion of penal substitution. There's no place for a substitute in his theology. There's no place for a sacrifice in his theology for sin. There's no place for the Son of Man who gave himself as a ransom for many. No place for the Savior who has made sin for us. No place for a suffering servant who drank the cup of God's wrath to redeem us from the judgment and wrath of God. There's no place for that. In his theology. Because in his theology, God is love. Hence the name of the book. Love wins. And love overcomes all people, whether in this life or the next life. And so you can go to heaven even if you don't accept Christ in this life because ultimately God's love will triumph over your lack of love and you will be compelled even in the afterlife to come to God. take this to the extreme, then there is no hell. Why hell? You don't need hell in this theological scheme because God is not angry at sin. God does not need to judge sin. And so take it to this logical extremes. There can't be any hell because that would be inconsistent with love. Hence the title, Love Wins. This is an attack on the very work of Christ and the nature of the gospel. And I want you to understand this. As you interact with people, you point them back to the substitutionary work of Christ upon the cross. You remove that. You strip the gospel of its power. You rob Christ of his greatest work on our behalf. It removes the heart and the soul of the gospel and does injury to the gospel itself. You can't do that. So I say these things because I want you to understand What's taking place? And all of these examples that I've shown you are are under the guise of evangelicalism. They're all done under the auspices of the church. And you can see why it sounds so winsome and so friendly and so welcoming and so loving. It sounds that way because there's an ounce of truth in some of these things. But it doesn't take to consideration the doctrine of the atonement and the substitutionary work of Christ. So that's why we need to understand this. Christ really did die in our place. Christ really did take God's wrath. Christ really did receive the judgment and the punishment that we deserved. I want to prove that to you from Isaiah 53. Remember I said, long introduction, short message. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. This chapter has been called the, the Holy of Holies of Isaiah. It has been called the portion of the fifth gospel. Some have termed Isaiah the fifth gospel as it accounts for the life and the birth and the death and the return of Christ, all in this wonderful Old Testament book. It is a book that's quoted at least eight times in the New Testament and alluded to many other times. In fact, one of my favorite stories occurs in Acts chapter 8, where the Ethiopian was riding in his chariot. He was going along from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. He's got his Bible open and he's reading And he's reading out loud and God sends Philip to him. And Philip says, hey, Ethiopian, what you reading? And he hears him reading Isaiah 53. And the guy says, 
I don't know what this is. Can you explain this to me? That's called open door for the gospel. And so Peter, it says, preaches Christ to him from this book in the Old Testament about the substitutionary work of Christ. The man was saved. He understood that he needed to be baptized. And he says, stop, look, water. And Philip baptizes him right there. All through this chapter in Isaiah 53. This book was written 700 years before Christ ever existed. And Isaiah is writing this book to do two things. Number one, to, to, to speak condemnation and comfort. Both of those things are the message of the book of Isaiah. Condemnation in the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 39. And comfort in the second half of the book, chapters 40 to 66. And the greatest comfort that he can give to Israel in the time when they're being judged for their disobedience is to speak to them about the coming of Christ who will bring them back from their dispersion and bring them back to their land and will redeem them and make them a nation again and be their God and and provide for their forgiveness of their sins. This would all take place one day through Christ. And he points to that here in Isaiah 53 to give them some hope in the midst of their time of rebellion and condemnation. I want you to listen as I read. I'm going to actually start in chapter 52 and verse 13 through chapter 53. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them. They will see and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? From the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Although he had no done, no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered for the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Obviously, we're not going to have time to go through verse by verse every one of these. I just want to highlight five elements of the penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement of Christ. Very quickly, five elements to the penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement of Christ. And to convince you that this is the heart and the soul of the gospel. Number one is the exaltation of Christ. It's the exaltation of Christ. And Isaiah starts at the beginning and he looks ahead and he looks beyond Christ's sacrifice and substitutionary work and he sees how he'll be exalted. Look at chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Here, Isaiah anticipates a time when Christ will be exalted. He'll be extolled. He'll be lifted on high. He's looking beyond his suffering to the time when he would experience that. When he anticipates the work of Christ for which he is extolled and lifted on high. 
He must suffer first, though. Look at chapter 52, verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Here Isaiah prophesies that Christ would be beaten, tortured. His appearance would be marred. We talked about this when we went through John, and we we looked briefly at some of the sufferings that Christ endured. He was beaten. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head and pressed into his scalp. He was spit on, scourged, crucified. In fact, so heinous was his appearance that he was unrecognizable as a human. Verse 15 says, though, that his, the astonishment over his appearance would turn into awe as he would become king one day. Look at chapter 52, verse 15. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And so the amazement at Christ's disfigurement and his horrible condition of his appearance as a result of his beatings for us would turn to wonder. At his grace someday. This is the exaltation of Christ. Number two, the rejection of Christ. The rejection of Christ. Chapter 53, verses 1 and 2. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. You can kind of imagine this ground that's, that's all parched and dry and arid and, and springing out of this dry ground is this little fresh nub of a plant that's making its way out and it's, and it's alive. And it's going to bring life to those around it. That's the idea here of Christ. He grew up out of this parched ground like a root. But notice what it says. He has no stately form or majesty. That we should be looking upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't look like a king. He, he didn't have the form of a, a regal king. He wasn't wearing the, 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 the crown and the, the, the robes. He had no stately form of majesty. He had no outward manifestations of being a king. There was no majesty to him, no, no glamour to him. When you looked upon him, you, you couldn't see that he was a real king. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. We have no record. We have no surviving picture of what Jesus looked like. And so anytime you see a picture, it, you know, it's got this very beautiful face and long flowing hair and exquisite features. We don't know what he looked like. Chances are he was very plain. It says in verse 2 that there was no appearance that we should be attracted to him. Not, nothing that would be drawn to him as, as a man that had any stature because of that look at verse 3 he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face he was despised and we did not esteem him he was forsaken he was rejected he was hated by the time of his death he only had a few followers only a few disciples and a few women who were actually following him and although the crowds initially followed him and were interested in him and masses of people initially were engaged in him by the end they were shouting crucify him crucify him he was rejected despised and hated the exaltation of Christ the rejection of Christ number 3 the substitution of Christ and this is this is what I want you to see The substitution of Christ. This gets really to the heart of the issue. And I want you to notice in verses 4 through 6. I want you to notice the pronouns. You remember back to ninth grade English? Remember what a pronoun is? I, no, we, you. Okay, look at these. And I want you to just notice the the interchange between these pronouns, between the we's and the ours and the he's and the him's. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of god and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him Friends, that's substitution. 
And you can't look at that passage and you can't read that passage and just say, well, he died as an example of love for us. He died as a substitute for our sins. He paid the price we deserved. God smote him. God afflicted him. But not for any evil in him. Not for any sin in him. It was for us. It was our sin that was placed upon him. And he was crushed. It was our substitute. Look at the end of verse 8. Just skip down to verse 8. Look at the end. For the transgression of my people. That's substitutionary language. Look at the end of verse 11. As he will bear also their iniquities. That's language of substitution. Look at the end of verse 12. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. Nine times in these verses, Jesus is specifically told that he is going to bear the sins of the world. And friends, this is what makes the glory of the cross so magnificent. You take this away, there's no gospel. You take this away, there's no salvation. You take this away, there's no hope. In our place, condemned, he stood. Number four, the isolation of Christ. We've seen his exaltation, his rejection, his substitution. Fourthly, the isolation, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Here he's the, the lamb. The lamb that is led to slaughter. This is the Old Testament sacrificial system in view here. And everything in the Leviticus and everything in Exodus and everything in Numbers that, that points to this sacrifice of a lamb before sin pointing right here to Christ. Those were all the shadows of which Christ is the substance. And he willingly went. Look at verse 7. It says he did not open his mouth. Twice it says it. He did not open his mouth. He didn't resist. He didn't protest. He willingly went to be our substitute. As a result, he was cut off. Verses 8 and 9, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That was prophetically filled in Christ, wasn't it? He was assigned to be thrown into the valley of Gehenna, his body dumped in the valley, the trash heap. And yet God sovereignly ordained that he would be assigned to the grave of a rich man. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was cut off. Our Savior, cut off from life because of our sin. The exaltation of Christ, the rejection of Christ, the substitution of Christ, the isolation of Christ, number five, the satisfaction of Christ. Verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It pleased God to crush Christ. You say, is that because God is sadistic? No. Because God knew that as Christ died, he bore the wrath for our sin. Redemption was accomplished and could now be applied. And salvation could be accomplished. Not only did it please God, it pleased Christ. Look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Christ will be satisfied. Christ won. Christ was victorious. Christ secured salvation. And so his substitution and anguish brought him satisfaction. It brought him joy to know that he was accomplishing that. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Right? He was joyful. Because he knew that he was accomplishing salvation and justification by his substitution. Verse 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with, his great, with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. That's the glory of the gospel. So friends, 
the only conclusion you can draw. And this is one passage. Go to Romans 3. Go to 1 John 2. Go to 1 John 4. You go all over the scriptures and you cannot help but conclude that the cross was a substitutionary sacrifice. Not divine child abuse. Not a nice example of love for how we are to love others. Friends, full atonement has been made. Full sacrifice has been paid. The penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is the heart and the soul of the gospel. And that's why we need to be passionate about it. That's why we need to preach it boldly. That's why we need to hold it dearly because you strip this away. You you remove the power and the authority of the gospel to save. Don't mess with the atonement. Friends, this, this can't be just an academic exercise. You, you can't just say, well, okay, got a good theology lesson. No, friends, this is heart and soul stuff. Heaven and hell are at stake in how you determine the atonement. That's why I want us as a church, I want us as a body of believers to be gripped. Th- this affects how you live This isn't just one of those truths that you can kind of put on your shelf and say, that was nice, check that out sometime again. No, this is life. And you need it today as much as the day you were first saved. And when you comprehend this, when you realize what Christ's death accomplished, it revolutionizes how you live. C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Does that define you? Does that compel you? Does that drive you? A great song, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Father, we we thank you that your word is clear. Lord, you don't stutter. You don't trip over your words. You don't have a speech impediment. Lord, you've spoken clearly. And Isaiah has has shown us very clearly the nature of the atonement. And we worship you. Oh God, let us not not get this wrong. Let, Let us not fall prey to the voices within even the church today who are saying, no, it's not that, it's something else. Oh God, let us... Let us stand firm for the gospel. Let let us contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And let us never relinquish any ground on the substitutionary nature of the atonement. It is our hope. It is what secured our salvation. And to you be all honor and all glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.